Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It remains October the 21st, 2021. I'm talking to you from the west coast of the United States, from my home in San Francisco on top of the world. Um, I'm having quite a, a Hemingwayan or Hemingway-esque kind of day today. Uh, earlier this morning, uh, I interviewed the noted American writer Sebastian Junger. Uh, he has a new book out, Freedom. He's a man of few words. He's very terse. The, the book is made up of three sections, one that's called Run, one that's called Fight, and one that's called Think. Um, as I said, his, his new book is called Freedom. Uh, his previous book was called Tribe. He's often been compared to the great American journalist and writer Ernest Hemingway for the for his prose, for his carefulness with language, with the sharpness of language, and I guess the few words he uses. Um, my guest um, this afternoon, or at least it's his afternoon, perhaps eve early evening, um, has a title which is also Hemingway-esque or Hemingwayan, at least according to him. Title of the book is how to live, what to do. His, um, the author is Josh Cohen. He's based in North London in England. Um, and as he acknowledges at the beginning of the book, uh, How to Live, What to Do is the title of a poem by uh, the great American poet, Wallace, 20th century poet, Wallace Stevens. As, um, as, uh, as Josh says, um, he, he points out in, in the poem the Hemingwayan austerity of that image. Uh, the poem itself, How to Live, What to Do. I'm just going to quote a couple of lines. Last evening, the moon rose above this rock, impure upon a world unpurged. The man and his companion stopped to rest before the heroic height. I think that's enough from me, Enough, certainly enough language. I want to bring in Josh Cohen from um, North London. Uh, Josh Hemingway. I've had him this morning twice. What is it about this guy? He's somebody that we feel an irresistible pull towards because I think it's the simplicity of his language, the quietness of it, that seems to cover over depths of feeling and uh, emotional intensity. Um, there's this ominous sense with every sentence of Hemingway that something is just bubbling underneath the surface, even if it's just a bit of banter between men or a bit of intimate rapport between a man and a woman. There is a sense that the whole of emotional life is about to explode um, uh, at, 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 you know, imminently. And that sense of emotional immediacy, I think it, it brings alive um, our intimate lives, our friendships, our love relationships, our hate relationships. But is that Hemingway or us? Um... The book, uh, Josh, um, 
how to live, what to do in search of ourselves in life and literature is this merging in a way, I'm not sure if that's the right word, of psychoanalysis and literary theory. You are both a psychoanalyst and a literary theorist. Mm. Um, do we read too much into language, perhaps, especially when you have a guy like Hemingway or perhaps Junger who uses so few words that we overinterpret words when, when there aren't many of them? You can do that. On the other hand, one of the pleasures of Hemingway, in a way, is just to be receptive to them. I think there's a difference between overthinking words and imposing too many meanings on them from the outside and just letting them wash over you. I think when you do that, it's not a contrivance. It's not a way of, of finding this hidden meaning and that hidden meaning and resolving all its puzzles. It's more just feeling at a more visceral level that so much is going on um, that, you know, even given the minimal of words, the minimal, the minimum communication between characters, there is world of emotional exchange, emotional undercurrents informing the scene. Let's get to the poem then, how, do, how to live, what to do. Um, you make it clear that you, you, you take Stephen's poem, the title of the poem, as the, the title of your book. W what is it about this poem, Josh, that uh, had such a dramatic impact on you that you chose to make it the title of your book? I think, first of all, just the title. It's such a lovely title because... The poem seems to disappoint if you're expecting it to deliver some homiletical wisdom about the best way to live and the best way to act. And yet, if you just, again, let yourself be receptive to the poem, I think it does give you a response to those questions. How do I live? What do I do? It just doesn't give you a 12-step program. It doesn't give you a kind of facile set of bumper sticker sagacities about you know what it is uh, that makes a, a good life and what it is that makes a bad life it gives you a, an orientation it gives you a way of inhabiting your life because it says look we are all this man and companion we don't even get told who this companion is whether it's a lover or a friend or a dog but he's walking in a landscape and he's looking for something. They're both looking for something. And what they're looking for is some majestic revelation, um, uh, a, a, a full of flamed sun, you know, so some spectacular fireworks, either from the external landscape or from the inner landscape, but they're waiting for some, you know, transformative revelation that will make them see the world in a new way and it's going they, they sort of imagine that it's going to be um very extravagant and yet they arrive somewhere they arrive in, in, in front of an unprepossessing unlovely tufted rock a mountain basically a bare rocky mountain and there's nothing much in the vicinity and all they can hear is not 
again, some gorgeous harmonious chorus of birdsong or of angels in the sky, they can just hear the haunting sound of the wind. And yet there is something about being in the presence of this very plain landscape that just is what it is, and the wind, which is just is what it is, that is revelatory in a different way because it allows them to be present to what is in front of them rather than um, looking towards some unnamed elusive future and, and living for what's not there rather than for what is there. And so that's the sense in which I think it does answer the questions in the most modest, sort of mildly ironic way. Spoken like, I'm not sure whether you're speaking as a literary theorist or a psychoanalyst. As I said, you're both. Um, yeah. so psychoanalysis has a long history in the 20th century, of course. I don't know if it's born by Sigmund Freud, but you've been very influenced by Freud. You've written yeah. a book. You've written a book about him, uh, and Freud pops up, excusing that Freudian uh, slip uh, from time to time in the book. Um, do you read as, should we read this book, or, or is this book intended? Um, when you read books, Josh, are you reading as a psychoanalyst, or are you reading as a, a literary theorist, or do you wear both caps simultaneously? Um, you're talking to me from your 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 uh, your office, your psychoanalytical yes. office, yes. Uh, your therapy office um, in North London, uh, yeah. or have those two beings merge so much with you that you can't actually distinguish the two? Uh, they have merged a lot, and they do inform each other. But I think that there's actually a third element as well, um, which I hope is in the book too, which is the element of me as an ordinary human being. Um, and if you ask me which of those three I read as, I would say in the first instance, I read as an ordinary, hopefully receptive, reasonably intelligent human being who really loves fiction, loves poetry, um, loves to it, sort of experience the mind and the imagination of another person, just finds it endlessly fascinating um, in a way that is much more to do with ordinary human encounter, with just being one person listening to another. And then, of course, that's the fascination for me. Well, listening is, as you, as you make it clear in the book, listening is part of your job, both as a literary right. theorist and as a psychoanalyst. Listening is, is very hard. I tend to read books as a, an amateur psychoanalyst. I'm always looking for confessions. And the confession comes early in your book. You're a five-year-old. Yeah. You sound rather miserable. And then your parents come home with uh, a Peanuts cartoon book and everything changes. What happened to the five-year-old Josh Cohen? I'm so pleased you, you, you brought up that, that passage in the book. Um, what happened was um, that I found myself in the pages of Charles Schultz. Uh, my parents had come home from this. Um, they were actually on a on a cruise. I'm not sure if I mention it, but they they'd been on the Queen Elizabeth II uh, cruise ship to New York, and then they sort of had a, you know, I don't know, some kind of second honeymoon. But they were away for quite a while, and they'd left us with our grandparents. And when they returned, 
they came bearing gifts and a lot of guilt. And um, their gift to me was a, a big bumper volume of Schultz cartoons. And I remember just wanting to go upstairs and sit on my bed and read it. And perhaps it was, you know, a mild act of retaliation against these parents who had gone away. Um, but I dived into the first page of this book and in a way that I certainly couldn't, of course, have articulated to myself then. I'm not sure that I can even articulate it to myself now, but I, I think I felt the first profound impact of reading, of finding yourself on the page. But finding and, yourself... and that's what I found really interesting, actually, about mm. this section of the book. You, you, you oh. talk about... Um, and I'm quoting from the book, these days we might say that I found Charlie Brown relatable, but I don't think the word captures the unsettling and exhilarating surprise I felt at the moment. Um, the little jolt I got from this strip came on the contrary from being told something new and uns unsuspected about myself. Are you suggesting then that there is this core self, this stone, this hard thing, which we can discover through literature? through books, through poetry? I'm not sure if it's stony. I think it's probably um, a, a little more elusive and um, malleable than that. Um, and I think it's, it, it, it isn't sort of captured and fixed in the way that stone is. Um, I think that in a way there's something quite airy and diffuse about the self. And in a way, that's what I feel happened to me in that encounter with the Peanuts cartoon, that um, there was something about myself that I think in some very inchoate way that I had no words for really puzzled me. And this cartoon has Charlie Brown going to Lucy and saying, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really understand myself. And she says, it's a shame because really, you're five years old, your character should be well established by now. And uh, he says, but, you know, it, it isn't. And he, she says, too bad, that's the way it goes. But for me, seeing Charlie Brown, hearing him grapple with not having much sense of who he was, feeling that his character eluded him, that seemed to me to capture my own predicament in a way that was completely accessible to me. Um, I didn't really know what the words meant. I didn't know what it meant for a character to be established, but I had a feel of what it meant, that where there were people around me who seemed to be quite defined, who seemed to have worked out what their place was in the world, I was simply puzzled by it. I was, I felt like I was walking around in a fog. And I saw that not just in, in Charlie Brown's words, but in, you know, the wonderfully intricate nuances, the simple nuances of his facial expressions. Um, Josh, the book, I, I found, uh, as I said, I, I think it's really good and interesting. Uh, it works off a very traditional narrative. You know, we begin yeah. with childhood, we go through adolescence, adulthood, and then, of course, old age and dying. Um, and each section talks about 
listening, literature, which can help make sense of ambition, marriage, middle age, first love, rebellion. In a sense, it's a very conventional narrative. I was thinking about your book because I've been reading, uh, and I don't know if you're familiar with this new novel by Richard Powers. It's become quite quite influential in the US. It's a book called Bewilderment. Mm. And it's a book about an autistic child who somehow grasps the, the imminence of the environmental apocalypse in America better, more coherently than adults. It's a it seems to sort of capture, it became one of Oprah's books of the of the month. And it, and it seems to capture our current zeitgeist that your mm. conventional narrative of going from childhood to adolescence to adulthood to old age has now, in our weirdly ap- apocalyptic time, been turned on its head. Does that make any mm. sense? It does make sense, yeah. Um, in a way... Uh, one thing that I like about a very straightforward conventional framework is that you can put it in question. I don't know if I do that that explicitly in the book, except that childhood is the first chapter, but in a way it's, you know, and, and maybe this is what the book owes most to psychoanalysis. It's also every other chapter too. Um, in some way, every other chapter is about how our childhood haunts us. Not, I think, in that sort of conventional, just in that conventional Freudian way that, you know, the way that we're parented and the drama of our early relationships with our with our parents and our other intimates um, go on to shape the rest of our lives, our, our, our professional choices, our, our intimate relationships as adults um but also in the sense you know the first chapter is about play it's about imaginative life it's about how there are different kinds of childhood which give us different kinds of access to our own imaginative lives and that lives can be prematurely closed down if we don't learn how to play if we don't develop a capacity for imaginative curiosity and so although it seems to go on a sort of fairly straight linear trajectory from childhood to old age, um, it's always looping back. There's something non-linear about the time frame as well, because it's always saying, well, how has this or that point in life been compromised by a character's sort of deep-seated difficulty with their own imaginative life, their own sort of relationship to themselves, their their capacity to play with the world and with themselves. Um, I feel like that that kind of strand of thinking runs through the whole book. So it's 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 got a kind of back and forth trajectory you, as well as a straight line one. Do you think that the literary life, as you're encouraging it, in terms of mixing it with making sense of ourself encourages rebellion. I think one of the things that the younger generation is struggling with these days is knowing how to rebel, how to articulate rebellion. Uh, I had David Guest, a very distinguished nature writer on the show. He's my age in his late 50s, 60s. 
He grew up with Thoreau, and his new book is a kind of rebellion against Thoreau. In other words, what I'm saying is, does, does literature allow us to rebel, not against the world, but against ourselves, and build our histories, our narratives in that way, as a form of not just this very happy, self-congratulatory narrative? Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's... I'm pleased you brought up Thoreau because he's one of my favorite writers. But and he's in the book, of course. He's in, in the your book. book yeah, that that's is. Right. yeah, he's in my book. Um, uh, he's he's not treated at length because, of course, he didn't write novels. But um, he, I think, is a, a, a kind of a, a surreptitious as well as an explicit presence. And I think one of the things that he has to tell us about rebellion is that rebellion doesn't mean much at an external level if it, if it isn't accompanied by a process of self-questioning. Um, that self-examination and um, a, a kind of penetrating inquiry into who one is and what one's doing is always a necessary condition for intervening in the external world. Um, I, I love that line of American thought for that reason, that um, it doesn't separate external disruption or revolution or resistance from internal examination. Um, and I think in that sense, Thoreau has an awful lot to say to our very perplexed contemporary condition. But Gessner's um, point about Thoreau, and this sort of ties back into your narrative, is that Thoreau himself was a child. You know, he went off to the yeah. pond and he got his mother to do his laundry and he had a very, yeah. very adolescent view of the world. And yeah. what Gessner seems to suggest is that, you know, Thoreau will never grow up because he's dead, whereas Gessner did. So literature can be used as a way of, growing up to, of growing out of our favourite writer. I mean, obviously, I assume you don't read uh, Charlie Brown when you go to bed every night anymore. No, I don't read Charlie Brown when I go to bed. I do I do really sometimes, you know, um, I mean, partly for, through introducing it to my kids um, and also just, you know, I, I do enjoy taking the books off the shelf sometimes. And Is there anything that you read when you were growing up that you're embarrassed by, that you can't stand anymore, that you used to really like? Yeah, I, I think um, some of those early sort of adventure books like uh, Biggles and the Hardy Boys, um, I, I, I've sort of tried to go back to them. And when I introduced them to my kids, they just seemed singularly charmless to me. I couldn't quite understand what the appeal had ever been. I think that those were the kinds of books that I read alongside classmates because other people were reading them and they didn't really speak to me in any personal way. They they sort of carried me along the wave of the story, I guess, but they they didn't speak to me. I wouldn't say I was embarrassed to have read them, but um, uh, they, they now, they, they, they don't seem to have made any real lasting impact on me, I hope. Josh, you um, 
as I said, I, I think it's a very nicely written book. Um, you write psychoanalysis, uh, psychoanalysis is not a way of distancing oneself from life, but on the contrary, of feeling more alive in it. And you go on to say, uh, part of the problem, I guess, in terms of our heads, why people come to you as a psychoanalyst analyst, is that part of the problem is we're trapped inside our own heads, unable to see ourselves from the outside. One of the characters you write about in the book is Kafka's Joseph K. Mm. And I'm wondering whether with the work of people like Kafka, I mean, people like Kafka, there's only one Kafka, you have this collapse of the distinction between literature and psychoanalysis. I mean, we're back in, you know, early 20th century Vienna or Prague, the world of Freud, the world of Kafka, and they're hard to separate. They are hard to separate. And, uh, you know, Kafka was familiar with psychoanalysis, somewhat skeptical of it. Um, I think he did write one story um, that was sort of an allegory of the psychoanalytic process. Um, But much more than that, uh, Kafka is channeling a kind of underground spirit of psychoanalysis, I think. Um, the thing about being in contact with the psychoanalytic unconscious, particularly the one that Freud describes, because there are different versions of the unconscious, but the one that Freud describes is really um, a dark repository of secrets of unknownness. And the thing about it is that when we bump into it, we feel disoriented. We feel that everything that we knew about ourselves and the, and the world is suddenly thrown up in the air. And where we thought we were standing on solid ground, we're suddenly sort of looking over the abyss. And that is the experience for me of reading Kafka. I, I have to be in a certain mood. I have to feel sort of reasonably robust to get, you know, to read the trial because I find the the sort of the, the breaking of all the established rules of reality of ordinary human interaction so completely vertiginous and and actually very distressing i find interesting it that you choose the word vertiginous my favorite yeah. movie is hitchcock's vertigo for that right. reason which is right. also of course deeply freudian um yeah. who's the most Freudian fiction writer is it Musel and is the book The Man Without Qualities I love that book yeah yeah I mean he he must come very very close um he's somebody who's really sort of analyzing character and I think writing in the internal atmosphere of, of Freud um I don't think he's somebody who's sort of um you know just taking the ideas and applying them. I think it's much more interesting than that. I think that what, what writers like Musil and Kafka do is that they they just, they, they breathe the same air and they then infuse. And vice whole, versa. I mean, yeah, Freud was reading the same, breathing the same air, eating the same food, having the same yeah. kind of sexual fantasies as, as, as Kafka and, and Musil. Um, yeah. The book then really focuses on what we can, I guess, learn from fictional characters and perhaps 
in an odd way, what fictional characters can learn from us. You choose quite strong characters. Uh, Gatsby comes up. Uh, there are some women, although more men. Uh, 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 Harry Rabbit Engstrom from Updike. Uh, mm. Mrs. Galloway from Virginia Woolf. <laughs> do you think you have a... Uh, do you think that the book... I wouldn't say it's limited, but could one argue that you're focusing on a literature filled with strong characters? You know, even Gatsby in his own weird way as a strong figure, a Mrs. Galloway, a Harry Rabbit, Angstrom, they're all they're all tragic figures in their own way, all flawed, but they're strong. They, they're, they're, they're not hard to identify and fit in to certain kind of cultural socioeconomic patterns. Yes, they're certainly strong in that sense, that they all represent a particular kind of class type and social type. Um, when you say that they're strong, I mean, strong in the sense of robust, of knowing who they are. I think what's well, they're, interesting... Well, they're vessels. They're, they're in a sense. I mean, especially someone like Gatsby. Not Again, not yeah. someone, the Gatsby. There's only one Gatsby. They're, they're... Yeah. They, they, they contain remarkable warnings, especially I'm talking to you from Silicon Valley. I mean, Gatsby, if anything, is more alive today in 2021 than he was in 1921. Sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, but all of them, I think, project a strong image to the outside world. I mean, if you think of those three, of, of, of Clarissa Dalloway and Harry, Harry Angstrom and, uh, and Gatsby, they all I think would project a very distinct, socially and characterologically distinct version of a person. You would look at them and feel that who they are is contained in their physical presence, in the way they speak, um, the words that they use and the ways in which they move and carry themselves bodily. So yeah, they're strong characters, but what each of the authors do, particularly maybe Virginia Woolf and, and Updike, is they really make us inhabit those characters internally. And then you wonder, well, are they so strong? Because the novels, and, and this is true of Gatsby as well, of course, maybe especially, the novels are really about the vulnerabilities, the points of deep fragility of these apparently very strong very powerful characters, um, the ways in which they seem always to be on the edge of a kind of unraveling. But on the edge, and they do allow you to inhabit them. I think um, contemporary literature, I had very uh, talented, she's not that young, but she's relatively young, American mm. writer, uh, fiction writer, Vanessa Vazelka on the on the show uh, earlier in the week. Uh, she has a, a re-release book, Zazen, full of people who it's hard to identify with because you can't put your finger on them. And that seems mm -hmm. to be the nature of contemporary life and the psychological, I wouldn't call it, call it psychoanalytical because it's the psychological crisis of our age of, of, of not even being able to put a finger on oneself. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a really, really interesting point. Um, and I think you're right in that sense, that 
I've chosen sort of typologically distinct characters that I could have gone to someone like Don DeLillo. Um, right, and DeLillo and, and, and Veselka, of course, is very much, I, I brought up DeLillo with Veselka because I right. see her as very much in that tradition, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and um, uh, a lot of, you know, can like, I mean, I think of Catherine Lacey as well um, as a sort of contem young contemporary American writer who's sort of very strong at, at, at conveying the anonymity and strangeness of being a, being a person, really. In, uh, especially um, in today's age, both the sort of this, I mean, particularly in COVID times of this simultaneous crisis of social media and of global warming, it all contributes to this sort of profound structural crisis of the self. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I, I touch on this again in one of those sort of brief memoir sections at the beginning of one of the chapters where I talk about um, uh, a rather kind of heartbreaking dialogue with my elder son, um, who sort of talks to me really about what it what it is to live without the guarantee of a future, and what that does to his sense of ambition and to his sense of a selfhood that is evolving in the world. Mm. That, that is the generational crisis, and that's what. Yeah distinguishes our generation from your sons and my children, this sense yeah. of the apocalypse, which even it would have even been foreign to, to Freud or Kafka, even though they yes. were kind of on the verge of a different kind of apocalypse. Yeah, you're right. Freud starts from the premise that um, life and selfhood are there to be one. Um, right. And even if we have to make all kinds of compromises and live with all kinds of disappointments, um, there is some horizon of coming into oneself, you know, realizing oneself. And, uh, and that's the heart of your book too. And it's in yeah. that sense, it's Freudian. Uh, and it's a wonderful book. I don't mean to be in any way critical. And I think no. I'm probably in your camp too, because I'm part of that generation. Mm. Um, finally, um, uh, uh, Josh, I had Richard Lider on the show. He's a nonfiction writer who writes about mm. aging. Um, he has this idea that we grow into ourselves with age. You still believe um, in your book in the idea of the wisdom of, of, of old age. Is that fair? And of a life well lived when we, be, when we you know, kind of on the verge of death, we, we, we become enlightened about ourselves and the purpose of our life? I think it's a possibility. Um, and it can come about in the form of a kind of developmental wisdom where you you sort of have the the sage understanding of what what life means because you've come to the end of it, because you've been through the various passages. Um, but I also think that, again, there's something maybe more nonlinear, that at the end of a life, it can be illuminated in quite poignant, unexpected ways. You know, in the last chapter, two of the characters that I talk about, uh, the prince in, in Lampedusa's The Leopard. And, yeah, which and, reminded me of that wonderful film as well. And I actually just, yes. I'm, I'm going to reread that book. You reminded yes. me of its importance. It's come up from time to time because of the, the famous phrase about if you want things um, to change, uh, if, 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 
what is it? What's the the the, the quote, Josh? Yeah, what is the what is the it's great about line? change and standing still? Essentially, if you want if you want to stand still, things need to change. Exactly. And of course, exactly. it's the crisis of the late nineteenth century Italian aristocracy, which today is the crisis of the globalized elite of of the early twenty first century. Yes, exactly. Um, and uh, there there is this bargain that's made in the leopard um, where this aristocratic family believe they can trade um, they, they can sort of trade at the marital level and at the social level with the incipient bourgeoisie and of course they find that as soon as they do this as soon as they compromise social hierarchies um, their world unravels um, and it's, I think, sort of beautifully integrated also into a portrait of Sicily and the kind of the, the spirit. And the movie, and the movie. I don't, and you know, the, the book's brilliant. The movie, I mean, yeah. I know books can, movies can be better than books, but they're on the same footing. So much to talk about, Josh. Um, how to Live, What to Do, a wonderful book, really interesting, relevant, very, very honest uh, in search of ourselves in life and literature, no answers, but lots of questions. And and it's a book which listens. You you you're in the business both literally and metaphorically of listening. And I think it's a book if you're if you're struggling to listen to yourself to others, get hold of this book. What else should people be reading? You're talking to me from your therapy center in North London. It look, sounds to me like we got a free half hour of therapy, Josh. Maybe you'll send me the bill in the uh, in the mail, the mail or on. Any other oh, books? I mean, we've talked about them. Virginia Woolf and Kafka and Musil. Anything else we haven't talked about that you would suggest people look at on well, top of yeah. your new book, How to Live, What to Do? I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest a, a, a young contemporary writer, um, uh, a British writer. I don't even know if he's if it's been published in the U.S., but his name is Chris Power. Um, he's recently written a novel, but I'm recommending uh, a volume of short stories called Mothers. Um, which is partly about mothers, um, but it's just... Mothers, not lovers, right? No, mothers, mothers. Um, and I think it's just an extraordinary volume um, full of, of shocks that are both the shocks of ordinary life that we all experience and sometimes also quite traumatic shocks, but rendered with a humanity and an economy of simplicity that I think is completely remarkable. Um, it, it, it has the feeling of a classic, um, of, of a book that sort of is ageless. And at the same time, it seems to me to speak so much to what you were talking about, which is the the, the predicament of selfhood in, in, our, in our moment. Well, we started with Hemingway. It sounds like the book that you just mentioned uh, has a Hemingway-like quality yeah. of economy of language. We'll have to get him on the show. Um, real honor and uh, a lot of fun, Josh, to talk. It's like talking to a friend. It's the first time we've met, but lots more to talk about. We'll have to come on the show again. Thank you so much. Congratulations on this new book, How to Live, What to Do. Uh, and we'll talk again in the not too distant future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Andrew.